John 3.16, we're looking at uh, John 3.16, this is our third sermon, and we're going into a lot of detail, it's a very theological analysis of John 3.16, so we're going into a lot of depth, and it is one of the most important passages in scripture, it's an amazing passage, so it's worthy of our study. I'll begin at verse uh, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, we're on 16b today. We'll be looking at the second half of the verse. And we'll spend two whole sermons on that. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, before we examine the purpose, which is the second half of verse 16, of the Father's giving of a Savior, let us remind ourselves of the full implications of this gift, this gift of the Son. The giving of the only begotten Son refers not merely to the Incarnation, that is the pre-incarnate son coming to earth to be born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem around 4 BC. Where he assumed a real human nature. But also to Jesus' life of perfect obedience, his fulfilling of the moral law and exhaustive detail as the second Adam, as well as his bloody suffering on the cross unto death. The Bible emphasizes that Christ achieved a perfect, sufficient, once-for-all redemption for his people. The atonement is the foundation of our salvation. His death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, is the foundation of our salvation. He was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. <clears throat> Many passages teach us crucial truth. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, and this is a quote of Deuteronomy 21.23, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Hebrews 9.26, Once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 10.12, This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Colossians 2.14 <clears throat> Christ, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way and has nailed it to the cross. There are essentially two things that Jesus had to accomplish in his redemptive mission to achieve salvation for his people. First, he had to pay the penalty of the law. The person who sins, that violates God's moral law, you've heard of the Ten Commandments, that's a summary of the moral law. The one who sins is under the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 and of course Matthew 7.17 uh, 7, and 23. The soul that sins, God says, must die. Ezekiel 18.13. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 If a person does not believe in Christ, he will die in his sins, Jesus said. John 8.24 That is, he will face God in the day of judgment with a guilty record, Revelation 20.11-15, and the liability of punishment that attends the guilt, 
Galatians 3.13, Colossians 2.14. They are under God's just wrath and condemnation, Matthew 24.41-43. And that is why Jesus says in John 3.18 that those who do not believe are condemned already. You're under guilt right now. You are guilty right now. You've been sinning your whole life. The wrath of God abides on them, Jesus says, John 3.36. They will be cast into hell. Matthew 22, 11-14, Luke 16, 22-23, or the pit. <coughs> Isaiah 14, 15, Revelation 9, 2. <coughs> Where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. Matthew 25, 30, uh, Matthew 13, 40-42, and Matthew 25, 46. Where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness. Matthew 22, 13, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. Apart from Christ, men are separated from the love and fellowship of God. So they will experience death in the fullest sense of that term. Spiritual, physical, eternal. And the penalty of sin helps explain why our Lord's suffering on the cross was so horrifying and severe. He experienced the pain of death and the outer darkness in our place, so we don't have to. You, don't, you go to heaven not because you're a good person. You go to heaven solely because of what Christ did. The wrath of God was poured out on him as he suffered and died on Golgotha. Yahweh, who is infinitely holy and righteous, Leviticus 11.44, 1 Peter 1.16, does not and cannot simply overlook sin and guilt, for that would deny his own character. 2 Timothy 2.13. He cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his character. That is why Islam, that is why Judaism, which is nothing but Phariseeism, it's not a biblical religion, and that is why all the cults are wrong. They teach salvation by works. Roman Catholicism is wrong. Salvation by works. Therefore, Jesus endured the full penalty of the law in the place of his people, vicarious atonement. He removed their guilt, their sin or guilt, expiation, and they are justified or declared righteous by his blood or death. Romans 3.24, 5, 9, and 18. Consequently, God's wrath is appeased, removed, or propitiated. That is, God's wrath is removed. Romans 3.25. In, in the monotheistic religions <clears throat> that are Unitarian, they're anti-Trinitarian, and of course they deny the divinity of Christ, and of course they deny the atonement of Christ, you turn over a new leaf, you be a good person, you have your good works, <coughs> excuse me, outweigh your bad works, and you get to go to heaven. Well, that denies the doctrine of God, because God can't overlook sin, because he's absolutely, infinitely holy. Second, in order to possess glorified eternal life, a person also needs a perfect positive obedience in thought, word, and deed to the whole moral law. The cleansing blood of Jesus eliminates the guilty record of the law in full. However, the law also requires a perfect obedience, which no one other than Jesus Christ possesses. I don't know if you know that. The law requires two things. If you break the law, the penalty has to be paid. But the law, the law also requires obedience. And Christ takes care of both. The son's life of obedience as the second Adam plays an important role in our justification for our sins are not only imputed to Christ on the cross, they're removed and put on him by imputation, 
but his perfect positive righteousness is also reckoned to our account. He not only made our record clean as, as fresh white snow, but he also earned salvation in our place. He merited, he earned eternal life. We did not. Adam failed. The second Adam did not fail. Adam sinned. If Adam had not sinned and obeyed God perpetually, there would have been a time when he would have achieved glorified life, but he didn't do it. Jesus is the second Adam, and he does do it. To possess, to possess eternal life, we need the righteousness of Christ, Romans 10.4. Or the one, Romans 5.18, also called the righteousness of God, Romans 1.17, 3.5 and 21, 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Philippians 3.9. Or the righteousness of faith, Romans 4.11 and 13, 9.30, 10.6, and see Galatians 5.5 5 and Philippians 3.9. Because our Lord's sacrificial death and perfect sinless life, as the second Adam, that is, as our federal head, the elect's federal head, we can receive a righteousness necessary for heaven apart from the works of the law, Romans 4, 6. Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. It's not ours. We didn't achieve it. We don't deserve to go to heaven. Even our best works, our best obedience is tainted with sin. You know, I'd be out there street preaching and passing out tracts. And while I'm doing that, I'm lusting after a girl's breasts in front of me. Everything we do is tainted with sin. Everything. We need Christ for everything. That brings us... So, I wanted to set the foundation before you, just by, by way of reminder. Now, let's look at the purpose of God's love. God's love in sending Christ... To achieve a perfect salvation has a specific purpose or design. And it's stated, and this is our main text for today, uh, John 3.16b, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And there are a number of crucial teachings in this statement that deserve careful consideration. Super important doctrine. The first is our Lord's remarkable commendation of faith. Do you understand what faith is? Do you know what biblical faith is? Do you know what saving faith is? This is a very important topic. We need to understand what believing means and how faith appropriates Christ in his salvation. Its importance can be seen in that the word believe occurs 248 times in the New Testament, while the noun faith or belief occurs about 244 times. It's found through throughout the new it's found in the old testament as well but it's found especially emphasized in the new testament the word believe occurs seven times in matthew 11 times in mark five times in luke and 49 times 49 times in the gospel of john john really focuses on belief or faith sometimes in the new testament the term faith can refer to the content of the gospel you know, the faith, it's a noun, it refers to the content of the Christian message or the theological historical propositions that form the creed of biblical Christianity. But the vast majority of cases, by far, refer to the mental activity of believing. Believing in Christ. Now, we have been taught by Christ and the apostles that God loves the world and that Jesus died on the cross to save men all over planet Earth. We looked in detail at that. God has a general benevolence for all men, without exception. He gives them rain, sunshine, food, 
but God loves only the elect with a saving special love. But in verse 16b, Jesus tells us that no one is saved unless he believes in Jesus Christ. This is the teaching of the whole Bible. And here's just a few examples. Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark 11.22. Have faith in God. Mark 16.16. 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. John 6.29. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. Acts 20.21. 20, testifying to the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's summary of the gospel. Romans 3.28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Galatians 2.16, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace have you been saved, through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then one more. There's literally dozens and dozens of passages. Philippians 3.9, Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, by faith. It's not your righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. And how do you appropriate it? How do you get it? How do you lay hold of it? By faith, you have to believe in Christ. Now, to understand what the word believe means... Let us we're going to look at the standard English definition and then the biblical or theological definition. The word belief means to receive or accept, accept something is true. It is to have confidence or trust that a person or a promise is true. These are English definitions. If one believes, he is convinced that something is true. Faith is a conviction of the truth or the testimony regarding a person or a historical fact. I'm just summarizing dictionary definitions. Now, saving faith is very similar. It's defined by the larger catechism in a more specific theological manner. And I've just chosen this just because it's so detailed. It says, justifying faith is a saving grace. I'll give you the, the passages they give you. Uh, Hebrews 10, 20, 39. Wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit. So it's an unusual faith. It, has to, it comes from the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, 13. Ephesians 1, 17 to 19. And the Word of God. Romans 10, 14 and 17. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. You have to know the truth. To believe in the truth. Whereby he being convicted of his sins and misery. And of the desirability in himself and all other creatures to... Re Recover him out of his lost condition. There are several passages. Not only assented to the truth of the promise of the gospel, Ephesians 1.13, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ and his righteousness, therein hold, held forth for pardon of sin and the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. End of quote. That's the answer to question 72. And it's extremely detailed. And if you look at the Confession of Faith and you take the different segments and you all put them together, they teach the exact same thing. Saving faith is very simple. For it is a receiving and resting upon Jesus and his redemptive work as revealed in the sacred scriptures. Okay, we don't get to invent our own Jesus. 
The Jesus we believe in is defined by Scripture. The gospel involves believing in the person of Jesus Christ and his saving work as defined by the Bible. As Paul says, For I delivered to you first of all, and this is um, 1 Corinthians 15.4, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, of course, he's referring to the fulfillment of prophecy there. That's true, but he's also, everything about salvation is defined and set forth by the Bible. One does not get to define Jesus or the cross or the empty tomb as one sees fit. There are hundreds of Christian denominations. There's a homosexual denomination that calls itself Christian. There's the modernists or liberals who don't believe in the Bible at all, who don't believe in the resurrection, who don't believe in the atoning death of Christ, who don't believe that Jesus is God, who don't believe in the virgin birth, who don't believe in the miracles, and they all say they're Christians. How do we know what true faith is? Well, true faith lays hold of the truth as revealed in the scriptures, not some human philosophy not some human world and life view that is imposed that is not true at all. Christ and salvation can only be properly defined and understood through the teaching of the Word of God. Here's what John Owen says. All faith is assent upon testimony. And divine faith is an assent upon a divine testimony. Here's a, here's a Puritan, John Howe. He says, he asks, How do I believe Jesus to be the Christ? Because the eternal God hath given his testimony concerning him that so he is. A man's believing comes all to nothing without this, that there is a divine testimony. And then again, I believe such a thing as God reveals it because it is reported to me upon the authority. And that is the authority of the word of God. We believe who in the person of Christ, but we have to believe in the testimony regarding Christ that comes from God. We have to believe in the word of God to believe in Christ. The Confession of Faith says this. This is 14.2. By this faith a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word of God for the authority of God himself speaking therein. And here's A.A. A. Hodge. Saving faith rests upon the truth of the testimony um, of God speaking in his word. Saving faith receives as true all the contents of God's word without exception. Okay, the Bible's not a smorgasbord. You accept It's a package deal. You accept the whole thing or you don't. So when you see people, oh, I believe in Jesus, but I reject Noah's flood. I reject the creation account. I believe in evolution. Oh, I reject that stuff about the cross. How bloody. Oh, that's horrible. Oh, I don't like that. But I, I love Jesus. I'm really spiritual. I really like Jesus. He's cool like Buddha. No. You have to believe in what the Bible says. Mark 1.15 commands us to believe in the gospel. Some people make a distinction between believing a written account and believing in a person. This verse undermines such a distinction. Really, when one believes in a person, he believes the words the person speaks. He believes his promises and his asserted ability to perform. And that is what is meant by saying we trust in a person. So these people, oh, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I totally am dedicated to Jesus. Oh, but this he said here and this he taught there. I don't like that. I don't believe in that. Oh, the stuff about being 
tortured and dying on the cross. I don't, I don't that's terrible. I don't, resurrection, well, that's a fantasy. I don't believe in that. No, you believe it at all. You trust in the scriptures. The scriptures define Christ for us. <clears throat> the faith that lays hold of Jesus Christ must also believe everything that is revealed by God in the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. There are a set of doctrines called by the Puritans the sum of saving knowledge. You don't have to know everything in the Bible, but there are certain things you need to know before you can be saved that are absolutely essential to Christianity. <clears throat> the Apostle John warned of heretics who deny Christ. This is 2 John 9. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. And here's what Gordon Clark says. This is his commentary on the Confession. Saving faith is faith in Christ, but we must be careful not to empty the name of Christ of its New Testament meaning. Some ecclesiastical leaders want to restrict faith in Christ to such an extent that Christ becomes a mere name, without which nothing is to be said. The general tenor of modern religion is so antagonistic to the doctrine that the virgin birth, the two natures in one person, and even the atonement are said to be unessential. One must believe in Christ, they say, but not in a Christ who pre-existed as the second person of the Trinity, not in a Christ who is virgin-born, not in a Christ who rose from the grave. What Christ then do they believe in? The answer is, no real Christ at all. They have put their faith in an empty name, or better, they have disguised their lack of faith by pious terminology. End of quote. And that is so true. We have to very carefully study the scriptures and define Christ by the scriptures. Faith in Christ that is not defined by scripture was common even in the days of Jesus. Here's John 2, 23-24. And note that they use the word believe for a false faith here. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Because of the amazing miracles that Jesus did, he got these huge crowds. And they followed him and they said they believed in him. That he was a great prophet. Or they believed that he was the Messiah, but they defined the Messiah by their own false theology. He's going to come and he's going to conquer Rome and kill a bunch of people. But Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew that their concept of who he was was false. They were trusting in a physical warrior king, not the suffering servant. They were trusting in the miracles, but were not listening to Christ's teachings. The miracles, why does Christ do all the miracles? Well, obviously it's prophesied of him and he's God, but they're there to authenticate the message of the gospel. That's why the charismatic churches are not a revival. They're totally false. Charismatic ministers are false prophets. Miracles are to authenticate the gospel, and they don't teach the gospel in charismatic churches. I know. <laughs> I used to be charismatic. Observe that all do not drive equal profit from the words, works of God. For some are led to them by God, and others are only driven by blind impulse. So that while they perceive indeed the power of God... They do not cease to wander in their own imaginations. That's why there's so many people who profess faith in Christ, Christ who do not go to heaven. <coughs> and we live in an anti-doctrinal age where people think doctrine is absolutely unimportant. 
when doctrine is totally important. I remember I knew this evangelical lady. I gave her some of my sermon tapes, and she came back to me. Why do you go into all this detail? What's all this theology stuff? I'm paraphrasing. That's not important to her. What's important to her is having an experience. I watched a documentary about the well, the Vineyard churches and the, the Chuck Chuck Smith those churches. Uh, the, they, they started two different denominations. They were led by a guy, a very charismatic guy, who really got the ball rolling. Uh, was a guy named Frisbee, who turned out to be a homosexual, and he died of AIDS. But the whole thing, you watch the, the documentaries on this, they don't talk about doctrine at all. It's all about, well, I had a miracle. I had an experience. He's a great man of God. Yeah, he did some bad things, but he's a great man of God because I had an experience. No. No. Everything is defined by Scripture. These doctrines were not invented by the prophets and apostles, but were received from either Jesus directly or through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 1 Timothy 3, 16-17. These men also had a Spirit-inspired understanding and interpretation of the Old Testament Scriptures. Okay, when the New Testament interprets an Old Testament Scripture, it's an inspired, infallible interpretation. If a person has a false or heretical understanding of the person of Christ, Arianism, Unitarianism, Judaism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Modernism, Islam, Hinduism, or the doctrines of salvation, Roman Catholicism, the Federal Vision, the cults, or any teachers that add the works of the law to faith for justification. Then their faith is useless, for they do not believe the truth, and only the truth can set us free. John 8.32 Now let's look. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. Saving faith is produced in the heart of the sinner by the Holy Spirit in the process of regeneration as the reborn consciousness comes in contact with the gospel truths from the Holy Scriptures. Romans 10.17 So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 1 Peter 1.23 Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God which abides forever. A work of the Holy Spirit is nest in the heart of man is necessary to believe in Christ because of our fallen depraved state. Men who are dead spiritually, Ephesians two one to five, dwell in darkness, John one four to five, have hearts of stone, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, are slaves to Satan and blinded by him. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, Acts 26, 17-18, and 2 Timothy 2, 26, who cannot repent, Jeremiah 13, 23, are helpless, Ezekiel 16, 4-6, and cannot see or comprehend divine truth at all, John 3, 3, and 1 Corinthians 2, 14, need a work of sovereign grace upon their hearts by the Spirit if they are to really understand love and embrace the truth. Otherwise, it is foolishness to them. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Now, if you've done any witnessing to people, sometimes you, somebody will be, oh, that's great, I believe in Christ. But most of the time, people are all, what a, what, give me a break. This guy died on the cross and he came out of the tomb on the third day? Don't tell me about this crazy. It, it's a stupid fantasy. You're nuts. That's the way most people think, especially today when they're indoctrinated in atheism and Satanism in public schools. 
They need the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. They need to be born again, John 3.6-8, and made a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 6.15. They need to be drawn to the Savior by God, John 6.44-65. and 65. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Faith is a gift. You need to be regenerated to be able to see the truth and believe the truth. This is a very humbling statement. We all think from birth that we are the captain of our ship, and we can do anything that we want to. That salvation and faith itself are under our own power. But nothing could be further from the truth. Such thinking is clearly contradicted by the facts of experience. Men always choose the evil over Christ without grace, and the explicit teaching of Jesus, the Son of God. Without the grace of God that gives us spiritual life by the Spirit, who opens our deaf ears and blind eyes and draws us to the Savior and the bloody cross, we would never repent. We would never believe or love God. We wouldn't. That's why we give God all the glory. That's why Arminianism is clearly false, because it's, the glory is divided between Christ and, and the sinner. The reason that the gospel is good news to those who believe is not because Jesus came to help us save ourselves, but because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot prepare ourselves spiritually or turn ourselves towards spiritual truths. Therefore, let us remember that faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit and give Jesus all the glory for our salvation. Ephesians 2.8 for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. <clears throat> Paul's words may be paraphrased thus. I have the right to speak about the surpassing riches of his grace, for it is indeed by grace that you have been saved through faith. Unless you should begin to think or to say, but then we deserve the credit, at least for believing. I will immediately add that even this faith, or even this exercise of faith, is not of yourselves, but is God's gift. That's what that passage is teaching. I know it's perverted by Arminians. Don't get the idea that you get the credit for your faith. You don't. Now, it's your faith. You have to believe. But why do you believe? Because your eyes are opened by the Spirit. You're raised from the dead spiritually by the Holy Spirit. You're, you're drawn to Christ by the Spirit. You're made to see the beauty of the Word of God. You're made to see the importance of Christ and what He has done. And then you believe in it. You are saved by grace through faith, and it is a gift of God. The Apostle is not saying that Christians do not believe or exercise faith themselves, but simply that faith is a gift because God enables them to believe by a work of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, repentance or a change of mind concerning God, Christ, and our sin is something we do. We have to repent. But repentance is also called a gift because God enables his people, the elect, to repent. Acts 11.18 when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Who gave them repentance? God did. So they don't get to, even though you have to repent, even though you have to believe, you don't get to take credit for it and go, You know, I was smarter than my neighbor. I was wiser. I was more spiritual. I saw how great Christ was, but my neighbor didn't. No, you don't get any of the credit. 
Acts 13, 48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. You should see the, the gymnastics that Arminians go through to pervert that passage. The Living Bible paraphrases that, and, and as many as wanted to believe. That's not what it says. As many as were appointed by God to have the gift of faith believed. <clears throat> now let's look at faith as an instrument. Here's another thing that a lot of Christians don't understand, professing Christians. Repeatedly, the Bible says that one must believe in Christ in order to be saved, or that we are justified by or through faith. Romans 1, 17, 3, 25, 28, and 30, 5, 1, Galatians 2, 16, 3, 11, and 24, Ephesians 2, 8, Philippians 3, 9, etc., etc. It is important that we understand that we are saved solely by what Christ has achieved, and that faith is the instrument that lays hold of what the Savior has done. You're not saved because of faith, you're saved through faith. When Paul discusses faith in relation, relation to a Christian's justification, he uses three different expressions in the New Testament. By means of, or through, faith, and that's dia pisteos, by faith, ek pisteos, or from or out of faith, and piste with a dative. The dative use of the noun pistis is used as an, in an instrumental sense. For example, Romans 3.28. Faith is presented either as an instrumental means of receiving Christ or as the occasion of justification. The faith that possesses Christ and his work is never presented in Scripture as the ground of a believer's justification, but always only as an instrument of laying hold of salvation. We are not saved because of our faith, for it is not the source or foundation of salvation. Do you see these, you know, these little plaques that people have in their kitchen on their refrigerator, you know? Faith in faith, basically, you know. I have faith in faith. I have faith, whatever that means. No, it has to be faith in Christ. Consequently, people who want to subsidize faith for Christ or some kind of as some kind of meritorious work or act that is a substitute for perfectly keeping the law are totally in error. The neonomians. We are not to have faith in faith, but rather faith in the person of Christ and his redemptive work. We are justified by or through faith because it is faith that lays hold of and receives Jesus Christ. Faith in works, faith in Buddha, faith in the Pope, faith in Krishna, faith in the Book of Mormon, faith in the Roman Catholic Church and its heresies, faith in Muhammad or the Quran or the Virgin Mary does not save and is in fact wrong, deadly, and immoral. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Arminians teach that faith is not a gift merited, uh, received because of union with Christ in, in regeneration, but rather is a self-generated act of the autonomous will. Since in their view, the ultimate decider of who is saved and who is not saved is man and not God, they turn faith into a co-source or a co-foundation of salvation, along with Christ. You see why doctrine is important? Although modern Lutheranism is generally Arminian in its view of soteriology, that is the view of salvation, 
they didn't follow Luther, they followed Melanchthon, who became a heretic. Melanchthon shifted over to an Arminian view. They should have followed Luther. Their view does not reflect Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian, later called Calvinism. After noting Romans 8, 7-8, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And of course I ask you, does faith please God? Faith in Christ please God? Of course it does. Well, Paul's saying that if you're in the flesh and you don't have the Spirit, you can't please God. Here's what Luther says. And this is from his uh, Bondage of the Will, which Luther regarded as his best work. Quote, let the guardian of free will answer the following question. How can endeavors towards good be made by that which is death and displeases God, and is enmity against God, and disobeys God, and cannot obey him? So it doesn't sound like Luther was much of an Arminian, does it? That's a great book, by the way, if you can get a good edition of it that has the whole thing. <clears throat> the humanism of Arminianism has further degraded the modern presentation of the gospel into statements such as, let Jesus come into your heart, or accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Instead of looking to the objective, perfect, completed redemptive work of Christ in history, occurred around AD 30, the gospel is turned into a humanistic, subjective affair where one is saved by Jesus in the heart. It's turned into something subjective. Such thinking has much more in common with Eastern mysticism and Roman Catholicism than biblical Christianity. Not only is man presented as sovereign over Christ, but the objective nature of justification is denied in favor of a subjective experience. And why not? They don't preach the law. They don't clearly define sin. They don't make people feel guilty before God. It's just they talk about prophecy and then they might at the end say, hey, come on up, accept Jesus into your heart. Come up to the altar and accept Jesus in your heart, which is all on biblical nonsense. Note, Christ's perfect redemption occurs outside of the sinner, and when one believes in Christ, he is declared righteous in the heavenly court, which also takes place outside of the sinner. It's objective. The Savior's perfect objective work is grasped or laid hold of by faith. When a person is justified by Christ, you believe you're justified, he is baptized with the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ and then is progressively sanctified or made more obedient and holy over time. But the interior work of Christ or his Spirit has nothing to do with our justification. You see the difference? Sanctification occurs in you. You're made more holy over time. The Holy Spirit comes in you. You have the new birth. You're able to see the truth. You're convicted of sin. You follow Christ. You strive to obey the Ten Commandments. You strive to obey the law. You strive to be covenantally faithful. You want to grow in grace over time. You want to progressively put off sinful habits. If you've been drinking too much, give that up. If you've been smoking, give that up. If you, if, if you used to be a fornicator, you have to repent of that right away. You can't go out and be fornicating with girls or whatever. Or if you're a sodomite, you have to completely repent of that. The interior work of Christ or his spirit has nothing to do with our justification. Remember that. 
the anti-doctrinal spirit of this age is exceptionally dangerous. And uh, I used to get, there used to be a really good magazine, many, this is 40 years, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, put out by Robert Brimsmith, I think he's a Lutheran. And he just took all these writings by, by uh, charismatics and by Arminians, evangelicals, and he compared them and showed that they were teaching, what they were teaching was very similar to Roman Catholicism. The charismatic movement is not a revival. It's not a true Christian revival. It's a shift toward Rome. To teach as many do that men generate their own faith and are saved because of an act of their own will is a denial of the gospel as taught by Christ and the apostles. God does not accept a man's faith in place of a perfect obedience to the law, but rather accepts Christ's perfect obedience laid hold of by faith. See the difference? He did it. You didn't do it. You grasp it by faith, but he did it. There's a world of difference between these two views. There's some common illustrations that can help us understand the instrumental or appropriating nature of biblical faith. And I know that illustrations are never perfect, but I want you to help you understand. Faith has been compared to an empty vessel which holds a priceless treasure. The vessel is not the treasure. It grasps the treasure. It holds the treasure. Some have compared faith to a ring that holds an immensely valuable diamond. The ring in this case is not made of a material that's valuable like gold or platinum. It's, it's generally worthless. It's not worth anything, but the diamond it holds is worth millions and millions of dollars. Faith is compared to a feeble, empty hand of a starving beggar. He's naked, he's in the dirt, he's almost dead, and he reaches out that hand to take that precious, life-giving bread. Faith is as spoken as an eye which looks away from self solely toward Christ and the bloody cross and that empty tomb. Biblical faith is simple and is never divided. It always acknowledges that we have nothing to contribute to our salvation and that there is no other way to be saved besides Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus. No one can come to the Father except by me. The Bible doesn't teach pluralism. The Bible doesn't teach that all religions are wonderful and they all teach this different paths to God. No, one way, Jesus Christ. One way to have sins forgiven, the bloody cross. One way to have the righteousness necessary to stand before God in the day of judgment, the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's the only way. Genuine faith always acknowledges that all of our, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Philippians 3, 8-9. to And that apart from Christ and his perfect work, we are hopeless, destitute, dead, and damned. Faith alone is a confession that all which is necessary for our acceptance with God has been done by God himself in his redemptive act in Jesus Christ. It is an acknowledgement that Christ himself, in our name and on our behalf, met all the obligations before the bar of eternal justice. Now, I didn't go into it here because I didn't want this to become too long, but you go, okay, I understand we have to have faith in Christ. 
We have to have faith in Christ, right? Yeah. And it has to be in the Christ revealed in Scripture. That's true. But how do I know if I, I have faith? Because there's so many people who say they have faith and they fall away. You know, like I watched that documentary. Here's this guy, he's preaching to all these crowds and he, he's supposedly a faith healer and all this stuff. And then he goes out and he's cavorting with a bunch of homosexuals and he dies of AIDS. Well, he didn't have real faith, did he? No. Depart from me, Jesus said, those who practice lawlessness. True faith leads to sanctification. Or as the Westminster Confession says, it is accompanied by all the other saving graces. Sanctification. Perseverance in the truth. Covenant faithfulness. Do Christians sin? Yes, they do. Do Christians backslide? Yes, they do. But they always repent. They always return. They don't commit themselves to that. They never forsake Christ. They never apostatize. So, do you have faith that works? Are you saved by those works? No. They're, James chapter 2, they're merely evidence or evidences of true saving faith. Show me your faith by your works, James says. Because there was a lot of people in the church that said they believed in Christ, but they weren't living like a Christian. You know, oh, I believe in, you know, I've met people like this. You know, oh, I believe in Jesus. I walked to the front of the church. I made a decision for Christ. And then they're out at the bar hustling girls and getting drunk and, having, and fornicating. That's not a Christian. First John, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we call God a liar. And sin there is in a, a aorist tense, and it indicates um, not a habitual lifestyle, but yes, we sin every day. But he who sins is of the devil, and that's present continuous tense. It's your lifestyle. You're committed to it. As a Christian, we have to be committed, committed to hating sin, to putting off all sin, and repenting of all sin. Because of the sinful flesh, because of the old man, because of the, uh, the law of sin within, we, can achieve sinless, we cannot achieve sinless perfection in this life. But we don't stop trying. And we never give up. And we follow Christ the very day we die. That's how you know if you have true faith or not. Now, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. And we're going to look at the purpose of faith in Christ. And um, we're going to look at eternal damnation. We're going to look at eternal life. And you're going to learn something about, you probably know a lot about damnation, but we're going to get into the details of eternal life. It's, it's very interesting. I found this very interesting. So let's take a break. Let us pray, Father. We thank you for Christ. What a gift. We thank you that you have enabled us to believe by the power of your Holy Spirit in regeneration, giving us the gift of faith and repentance enabling us to believe and repent. Lord, we pray that you would continually do a work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we would die daily, so we pick up our, Christ, our cross daily and follow Christ. That we would hate sin with a holy hatred like you, and that we could not make peace with any known sin in our lives, that we could repent and die daily. Help us, Lord, for we have to fight this rotten sinful flesh that we hate. So help us be obedient. Help us put off which is displeasing in your sight and put on that which pleases you so that we could follow Christ and be faithful disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.